Yo. Hey everyone, welcome to Talcast episode 5. Uh, this is with my buddy Chase Alardiche, who is an amazing guitar player. He's from New York. We met in a guitar shop. He was playing Impossible Germany by Wilco, and I was playing Interpol across the room. And we both slowly started to jam together, and then we chatted, and we became friends. And he's a really good dude. He's a great musician. Um, he's a good friend of me. We've had some great times already, and we're excited to keep playing music as the pandemic lightens up. In this episode, we talk about music. We talk about what's punk rock, what's not punk rock, uh, what is jazz, what is songwriting. Um, talk about my distaste for some John Mayer songs, which is fun. And um, yeah, I'm excited for you to listen to it. This episode doesn't revolve around a specific piece of art just because we wanted to shoot the breeze about music, but... Um, I'm sure I'll have him back on to talk about a specific song. And yeah, I hope you like it. I hope your Monday is awesome. And I hope that you remember that you are beautiful and um, go do something fun for yourself today. Iridocyclitis. Right. We're recording, dude. We're recording. That's sick. I like recording. I was, uh, I was recording pretty recently for... My uh, ensemble for, for if, you know, being at Berkeley, like you have to do, I'm online this semester because the world is on fire. So, like, right. we have to do these online ensembles. So, I've been like recording just like this little guitar amp that I have. And uh, for like my jazz ensemble, it's really weird because it's like we're like, we have to, we have to solo for like a specific amount of time. But, like, we don't know what everyone else's solo is going to be like, so I just kind of have to guess and check with the vibe of the song and just hope that, like, whoever gets the track next knows what I'm talking about in terms of, like, the ideas that I'm trying to do in the solo. <laughs> so it's kind of whack. Wait, so do you send a stem to the person and then they... How does that work? Like, so, like, yeah, it's really weird. For the ensemble, I'm in like a jazz ensemble, and <laughs> we don't actually have a bass player either, so that's like another thing. <laughs> like, so, you know, we do standards uh, from like the real book, and this one guy in our ensemble is, uh, he's a freshman as well, but he like went to community college already, so he's like in his 20s, and he like has experience doing this type of stuff, so he basically makes like one of those iReal Pro backing tracks mm. with just, like, bass and piano, and then sometimes, like, a, uh, like, a snare, something like, like, a pad snare. And then he sends um, a stem of that all combined to each of us, and we just have to record it in Logic, and then we just send him our separate stems, and I tried to do it where, like, I recorded each part of the song individually, but it became a real pain in the ass, so another thing is I have to, and like the solos that we do, they're like five choruses long. So sometimes like you're waiting three minutes to like for when you're going to solo. So I have to do it all really naturally. One. Yeah. So I have to do it all in one take. So like, it's kind of a pain because like no one else's solo is in the audio file. So you're just sitting there and you're just counting and you're just counting and you're just like, okay, I hope it's right. That sounds horrible. Yeah. I mean, like it's I'm so you that you're going to Berkeley and you're like a musical genius and everything. I just feel I'm like a genius, but it's, like, it's such a bummer that um, 
that's your life right now, you know? Maybe it's good. I don't know. But I, I mean, I don't understand jazz. I use, I use the mate, like a major seven chord occasionally. So basically I play jazz. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, yeah, you just gotta learn the bebop scale. It's in the name. You learn the bebop scale, you learn how to play jazz. But uh, the bebop uh, scale naturally, yes. Yeah, I mean it's good because I, when you're at Berkeley, you get put in like these ensembles based on like a rating that they give you, and the rating doesn't really matter. Like you can be the like best guitarist in your grade or best musician, and you can literally have like a rating of two, and it's, it's out of eight. So like eight is everyone ends up getting to level eight before they graduate. I don't know. It's like this weird pseudo cult thing, but, but I got put into like level four, which is like not too normal to happen. Like for a first semester person at Berkeley. So I got put in an ensemble with like three other guys who were really good musicians. So it's great. But like the one thing is like, I can't actually play with them in person because they're all so good and they sound amazing. And there's so much chemistry. It's just like, yeah, we can't play together unless, like, it's on Zoom, but, you know, that breaks my computer. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I feel like, for me personally, there's no way I could hang in that, like, in an online... So I don't read music, right? Like, I don't read... Yeah. I feel like you're on the, the other side of the spectrum, and it's great. You know, there's nothing wrong with, like, either way, but I feel like I'm, like, kind of a the the rock and roll like taught myself i took lessons but like i never learned to read music and writing music is kind of a whole weird like mystical process for me so i feel like if i couldn't be in person with someone for them to like show me the techniques and like um i don't know like do music the way that i do music like there's no way i could do like an ensemble on zoom you know but it's pretty crazy because like i'm you know i talk to a lot of people in class and I'm in like group chats and stuff and I talk to them and everyone and I like look at the conversations and like there's definitely some people who like are struggling a lot with this whole situation going on because a lot of people who go to Berkeley they don't really learn the academia side of it. Like when you go to Berkeley it's actually a lot of academia. Like I don't, I only have two classes that I actually play music in a sense where I play my own instrument uh, this semester. Uh, most of the time, you only have one class that you play with. That isn't a private lesson. Um, so there's a lot of academia involved in terms of learning the pedagogy of how music works. And there's a lot of people who don't learn in the normal way where it's like you have a slideshow or you have like a text, like I have a textbook for like um, sight reading stuff. And you know, in our classes, we basically just go through the textbook and, like, just do the exercises. But a lot of people don't learn that way, and a lot of people learn through interaction, and it's really hard to get that. So a lot of people have definitely been struggling. And, I mean, I'm doing fine because I find... I took college courses when I was in high school for the last two years. I basically did, like, the equivalent of a stacked first semester at college for two, first year at college, I should say, for the last two years of high school. Um, so I'm kind of used to, like, the college learning environment, but it's definitely weird in some case, especially, like, the projects. Like, sometimes they're just impossible to do. Yeah. yeah. Like, we have a group project. <laughs> we have a group project, and, like, the teacher's explaining it, and me and the people in my group are just kind of like, how do we do this? Because... 
we have to do it on Zoom. And it's like we have to film ourselves doing stuff, but on Zoom. It doesn't really make sense. So, yeah, that's yeah. crazy. All right, man. Well, so for the sake of the podcast, I want to go back to. Yeah, sure. I, I, I go, it's going to be themes throughout it, but I go on really long tangents. You do, you do the tangent thing, and I respect you doing the tangent thing, but my job is to keep it semi on track. So I, I yeah. say some questions beforehand, so I want people to know that. Yeah. Normally, you do like, normally what I want to do is have the podcast revolve around a specific song, but I feel like you and I talk about so many different, so much different Yeah, I, I appreciate you sending me like the various questions, because like when we, <clears throat> when we meet up, it's always like, what guitar are you going to buy? And then we, like, 30 minutes later, we'll be on, like, I don't like, hating Why John Mayer's lyrics are, like, the worst ever. I can't. So, like, I talk so <laughs> John Mayer's amazing, right? Like, he's such a good musician. But let me ask you a question. What's the least punk rock song ever written, and why is it waiting on the world to change? <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were in Sam Ash. And like you don't really you, you know you don't really curse a lot like you don't say bad words and I remember you brought up that song and I think that's like the only time I've heard you say something remotely like because <laughs> you just like angered you. I remember hearing that song in high school and high school was you know it was, it was a while ago for me. Yeah, yeah. And like that was back when I was listening to almost exclusively like grunge and punk and I don't know it was just it just felt so far removed from anything remotely angsty you know yeah and just the theme essentially for those for people who are listening like the theme of that song is like me and my friends we can't do anything to change the world so we're just chilling like we're just waiting around <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the whitest that is the whitest um milk vanilla ice cream in a bowl song that i've ever oh, yeah. heard be written but at the same time you know can i play guitar like john mayer can i sing like john mayer can i no no one can you know can i date jennifer aniston like john mayer probably not you know but well you're a cutie but like you know odds are stacked against you but i think the least punk rock song ever written is probably it's not a song that he wrote but um the the singer from the misfits um like the original singer, Glenn Danzig. Yeah, Glenn Danzig. He made an album this year of uh, Elvis covers. Okay. And, like when I tell you, like you know, Elvis is punk rock, man. Elvis, like if you go back and listen to some of those records, and you put yourself in the mind of like a thirteen-year-old kid, that is like. Cr- I mean, my dad was my dad was a kid when Elvis came around, and like, like Elvis was banned on the radio. The biggest instance was. Um, that song uh, by Link Ray, I forget what the Rumble. Um, like my dad told me that when like like when his friends heard that song, they freaked out. And you know, it's kind of like a simple song, but well, and um, they also like they wouldn't show his hips on TV, right? Like they yeah, they didn't show all his hips. Like but, his, his dancing was considered like super obscene, and yeah, he was yeah. punk rock for sure. But he's, you know, you, you have a good punk rock bass, but holy crap, this guy like. Probably, like, you could argue that this man is, like, the greatest frontman in punk rock history. You could probably argue that. Like, Glenn Danzig is one of the greatest punk rock frontmen. Top five, definitely. Comes out with an Elvis covers album. <laughs> and when I tell you, this is, like, the most, like... Dude, I swear to God, like, you can, you can hear them getting stone 
off their minds when they are making this because they probably think this is like the hardest, like the coolest, most suave thing on the planet. Man, it is just so bad. I cannot describe it. So that is one contender, so, like the least punk punk rock song, like any song on that album. I can't choose one. They're just all really bad. That's that's interesting. That's pretty meta because it's like they're not they're written by Elvis who was punk rock, but it's like somehow they figured out a way to make the songs. Work. Yeah, it's really it's really strange. I think another song that is like the least punk rock punk song would probably be anything off of uh, excuse me uh, American Idiot or actually no anything by Green Day that has been released since, including American Idiot. I think. Okay, so, I, and I know you like Green Day. So I do, the thing is, okay, so I like Green Day. I don't, like, there's a lot of stuff that Green Day put out that I do not enjoy listening to. That new album. That new album, oh, man, don't get me started. Like I did not enjoy the new record, right? But here's the deal. I feel like Green Day, they have a really underrated rhythm section. They do. Like, the songs are, like, really smartly written pop songs, and I feel like they get written off as this, like, they get written off for simplicity in a lot of ways. The other thing I used to hate, so I love like Dookie and Dookie is like one of the best records of the nineties. You cannot deny that it is so amazing and it's so influential. That literally inspired all the other pop punk bands to become a thing. Yeah. So I the thing is I love Green Day for that reason. Like my rule with music is if a band gives me one record that like I love, then I love the band forever. You know. Yeah. That's a good like, yeah, that's like, like Arcade Fire. I still love Arcade Fire even after they released everything now because of what they gave me before. You know, yeah, and that's that's a different discussion. But I used to really not like American Idiot, but I feel like now that it's like low hanging fruit to write a political protest album in 2020, I kind of have respect that they did that during the Bush era when like no one was saying anything. <clears throat> but I mean, that's kind of more like the context of the album and less like the production and the songwriting, the album itself. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I was in middle school. So it's like, I was listening to Boulevard of Broken Dreams and like, I felt some things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, when you hear, I think Green Day is a good introductory punk, punk rock band. Like they're a great band. It's not like anything insane. Like if I tell people to listen to punk rock and I tell them to go listen to Iggy and the Stooges raw power, like that is the hardest record I think that has been made. I think that's like probably the hardest record made in 20th century. It's just so aggressive. It's kind of absurd, and the production, just everything about it. So I think Green is like if you were to, and you know I love Iggy. Like I could talk. Oh, Iggy is yeah. I love Iggy, but I feel that you can't. It's really hard to go without context and just listen to Iggy and get it. You know? Yeah. I'm still trying. I'm still trying to understand Iggy, and I feel like I still don't have the full context. But like I, I mean, like I listen to you know I listen to the um, I listen to 1969. I remember when I was like 10, and I just did not get it. And then I started listening to Green Day, and um, I wasn't a Blink 182 kid. I kind of think they're uh, I can't really think of a good word, but uh, you know, just soft. I think they're softer than Green Day. But I was a Green Day kid, and. Um, I think they're a great band because, it, like you said, they're really well orchestrated pop songs, but they have distorted guitar and a killer rhythm section in them. So I think it's great for that. But I think once you get past like that beginner 
stage and you start to go listen to like some more niche bands like Talking Heads or uh, uh, Television or the Ramones or uh, you know Circle Jerks. I think that's when you kind of realize like you, that's when the pop aspect of Green Day starts to come out more because there's so many people who like listen to pop music and Green Day is probably like the heaviest thing they listen to and I definitely know especially in like I used to have this friend from South Korea and like they don't really have a lot of um, you know heavy music there it's a lot of pop music and it's really good but he like he legitimately like thought Green Day was like the heaviest band in the world like he did not realize that there were like other things like I remember like he, he knew that like Nirvana and Green Day were like the two heaviest bands in the world and then I showed him, I think I showed him like the band Sleep, and it just like he couldn't under he couldn't just understand like how is that possible? Because it's like there's not a lot of heavy music that's really popular there, but Green Day is insanely huge there. So I think it's I think they're great for that. Yeah, I feel like in a lot of ways I see Green Day as the rightful successor to like Buzzcocks and. Um, and the clash even you know yeah i can definitely see that because they incorporate a lot of i mean you know the clash is like probably the greatest punk rock band in the past 50 years probably music shit and green day does that too in like small amounts yeah and i think like you listen to do you listen to much buzzcocks at all i i listen to the buzzcocks a little bit but i mean I can say for Green Day, like, I, I was at work yesterday, and I work at a gym, and we play, like, this playlist. It's, like, the alt-nation Sirius XMU's um, mm-hmm. top 100, or top 200 most played songs, and, like, a newer Green Day song is on there, and there's, like, a bridge part in it that has, um, you know, an Arabian scale, which is something the Clash would do all the time. I mean, it's not done as well, but there's aspects of the Clash in them, and I mean, the talk is very happy as well, so yeah. you know, like there's elements of that too. I feel like the Clash is interesting because they almost like out punk rocked the punk rock guys because it, they they were considered like the first punk rock band to, and I hate this word, but quote unquote sell out because they like brought in elements of Jamaican music and like weird production things. When, when like their contemporaries, it was very purist and like you don't produce your albums. You don't bring in other influences. Like it has to be pure punk rock and like it's right now and this is what it is. And I feel like that's why a record like London Calling was so, it was just such like a bombshell, you know? And yeah. I, and they, I don't know what was in the water in 1979 because there were so many good albums that came out that year. But Well, I think the thing is, is like, um, if you read interviews with the bass player and the Clash and the drummer, it's not like people didn't like that shit. A lot of the punk rock guys in London, Indian and Jamaican music are two really big commodities over there. And you had Scott punk bands from the eighties, um, <clears throat> coming out of England. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the band, but that band with the song near in the bathroom, that was like a huge, oh, they, English beat. They, they English beat. Yeah, like, you have these bands that incorporate it. So it's not like people hated it. A lot of the punk rock guys listen to reggae and shit. I think that, like, people... There was, like, an amazing critical acceptance of it, of what The Clash was doing, and I think that people were just jealous, and that's where, like, the the sellout moniker... Yeah, definitely. 
I remember talking to kids who were listening to like Minor Threat and Fugazi and stuff when I was in high school and early college. And the clash was like a dirty word to them. It was, <laughs> it was really strange. Yeah. No, I mean, like it's, they're such a weird band. They're so interesting. And I think London Calling is, I think another aspect of it is if we were talking about Elvis and they took a lot of inspiration from him. If you look at the album cover, it's actually the same exact font as Elvis Presley's first album. It's the same I font. I recently learned that. I think I was listening to a podcast or something where they talk about it. And now someone's going to be listening to our podcast. And they're going to But yeah, but Elvis but Presley a lot of, took the weird, um, the bass player smashing his bass, right? So it's like... yeah. But they took a lot of inspiration from like old rock and roll, which punk rock people weren't really into that at that time. I mean, obviously, Iggy Pop and stuff and Black Sabbath, they took a lot of inspiration from 50s rock music. But by the time that 1979 came around, pretty much every person who listened to punk, who played punk rock, basically the Stooges and uh, I, I don't know, like whatever noise music was happening, uh, you know, Noi, like those were the two bands that all the punk guys punk rock guys listen to so the fact that the clash were like well why don't we go like take some stuff from like johnny cash and put it in our music i think that's why people hate it so much along with the fact that they were the biggest band in britain for probably five years well it's funny because i feel like that's such a trend in popular music and the way that the fans kind of make it their own and kind of ruin it in some ways like you think about a band like the clash you never ever listen to a Joe Strummer interview and hear him hating on any of those influences. Like he celebrated that, but then you have, you have like the punk rockers, right? Like the fan base who take it and they want to make it their own cult thing. And they're like, no, this is, this is our thing. And Elvis is the worst. And like, yeah, it's, that's, I mean, I was definitely part of that mindset for a while. I never used to listen to, um, you know, rap music. And then I listened to, I watched that NWA documentary, which is like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that they didn't really get right in it, but I think for like an introduction to the insane world of hip hop in the 1990s and late 1980s, I think that was a great introduction. And it allowed, it opened me up to this idea that like, wow, you know, people talk about punk rockers being insane. Talk about like, you know, the feud between g Easy and Dr. Dre and like some of the things that like LP and like, LP just being like the hardest motherfucker New York City has ever seen. Like, that's what appeals to me about music genres. It's not, I think the key to getting over that hump of like everything sucks is to not necessarily listen to the music, but also listen to the attitude and look at the historical context of what's going on. Because, like, especially country music as well. Like, you know, I've recently been starting to listen to some older country music and I used to hate it. And you I know, love, you see, I love country. Like, yeah. outlaw country is so good. Outlaw country is amazing. And, like, you know, people are always like, man, country's like, you know, such whitewash bullcrap. And I mean, the newer stuff is, but like, you know, you compare it to, you know, you see like punk rock, like, you know, uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but like the dude who would like crap on stage and like, you know, like there's a documentary showing his last day alive. I forget his name. He's insane. But you see that guy. And then you see like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, um, Johnny Paycheck, like, getting interviewed for shooting a guy. <laughs> and he, like, yeah. it's like, no one cares. It's like, everyone cares about that. Johnny Paycheck comes on. He's like, yeah, I shot him. Shot him in the arm. 
Yeah, well, I mean, like, impact down. You know, it's the it's like the the Johnny Cash lyric. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die or whatever. You know, like yeah. that stuff. I feel like it's so cliche now in in country music to say things like that, and it's like it's like a mythology. Like they're playing out the mythology, like a lot of similarly to how they do it in rock and roll now, right? It's like, yeah. It's like I'm partying and doing drugs and like. No, you're not, right? Yeah, like, no. <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah, but, no. like, if, I, if I write a song about doing drugs, it's definitely not about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. And I think, you know, like, that's a good place to be because those things mess you up. But, like, I feel like, I don't know. And that's a whole different discussion of where rock and roll is going and where country music is going because because of, like, how far we've strayed from the origins. And, if, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but... Um, I want to talk about you a little bit, though, man. Yeah, sure, baby. I know we can get off on these tangents about music, which is so fun, and we gotta we gotta go hang out again and yeah, it's more. But um, well, I'm moving to the city next week, so hope to see any more of you. Where in the city are you coming? Um, I'm moving next uh, next Sunday for the week. I'm moving in like during the week because I have to work out here on weekends, so I'll be there for Monday and Friday. Um. Okay. Perfect. Well, yeah, yeah we gotta hang. Um, hopefully some more guitar stores are open. I don't really know. I don't really know either, so we can go on this journey together, I guess. Like Sam Ash, you can play stuff more, but like I feel like the other ones are way more like classic New York. Oh, yeah, no, it's like... Everything. I'm going to go back to Rudy's and like see a burst sitting in the glass, you know? It, like Princess Bass, just this like on the wall. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool, I guess. wild, man. Um, okay, so let's talk about you for a sec. Um... First question that I sent you. What made you want to pick up a guitar? Um, three events. I can remember them exactly. I was in the car. The main one was I was in the car with my dad when I was... This is after I picked up the guitar. So I started playing guitar when I was five or six. But I didn't really take it seriously until I was ten. I was ten years old in the car with my dad. And we were on the road going back to my dad's house. And we were like a minute away. And we were listening to the local rock station. And Trampled Underfoot by Led Zeppelin came on. And yeah. that, like, I heard that guitar part was like, dan, 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 dan. I was yeah. like, whoa, what's that? So that's like the first thing that I like tried to learn on my own. Second thing was probably Outcast. Hey, ya. when I was like four years old, my mom put on Outcast in the car. Like Outcast, Outcast was like the first, I have a thing about Outcast. They're good, but I think there's a group that's better. That's a duo. And you probably know them, but I heard Hey On, I heard that acoustic guitar when I was, like, five years old. And, like, y- yes, I was listening to Outcast when I was five years old. Probably not a good thing, but that's I heard that, and I was like, oh, like, what's that? That sounds cool. So there were those two things. And then I think the third thing probably would have been my dad playing a Rolling Stones song in the car, because my dad is, like, the biggest Rolling Stones fan. He loves them. So, probably the Rolling Stones. So, like, those are the first three things that got me to play guitar. And then there's certain phases of my musical journey that I can see marked. Like, you know, when I got into guitar, most guitar players, save for a few, uh, they start out playing blues music and rock music. So, I started out with that. But I feel like a lot of them don't start out playing jazz. Now, I mean, obviously, 150 years ago, like, if you started playing guitar and you took lessons, you probably learned how to play jazz. Um, so I, I was self-taught for, I took lessons, but like they were kind of what my guitar teacher was a drum teacher and 
Weird side note, his brother wrote the song Cats in the Cradle. But that's another, that's another thing. But So, you know, he was like a good beginner teacher, but after a while, like, I just kind of got better than him. And I just used the lessons as an excuse to jam with a drummer. So I kind of taught myself a lot of, like, basic music theory. And then probably three years ago, I started taking actual guitar lessons with a guy named Bosco, who is, like, where I live. I live on the east end of Long Island, and... Uh, there, like, there's a huge musical history here, but like right now, there's like not a lot of music going on. But Bosco is like the one of the like the guys who just he plays guitar at like all the restaurants and stuff. He does like all those gigs, so he's like the one guy who does them. And he's a really good uh, jazz head, so that's where like I started learning jazz music and um, getting into like more out there musical concepts and so like, getting lessons <clears throat> with a uh, jazz trained. Guitarist uh, really helped, so that was like another that was another shifting point in my musical life. Okay, so I mean, without getting super technical as far as like guitar theory and stuff, for my sake, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Like, I just I want to know like how did that shift? Because I feel like I've studied a lot about the guitar. I really haven't studied jazz, but how has that shifted your approach to music? All right, well, I can give you a perfect example. So at Berkeley, you get private teachers, and I have this guy named David Tronzo as my private teacher, and he's probably, like, the best slide guitar player I've ever seen, but he plays slide guitar in a jazz context. Interesting. And half of our lessons are the philosophy of the guitar. It's not even he's teaching me stuff. We're just talking about it, and he's, like, explaining these, like, giant concepts to me about music in general. So when you talk about jazz music, it's it's... You showed me this video, like, last week, and it really... I, you sent me a question when it was, like, when was the last time you were inspired by music? I'm inspired by music pretty much every three days. So you sent me this video where you can go to watch. You can't answer this book. And it was Bill Frizzell. And for those who don't know, Bill Frizzell is, like, probably the top ten greatest guitarists who are living right now. He's amazing. He is so good. And he's explaining how <coughs> he improvises over his song, because I'm sure... Tal, you've seen those videos of, like, those jazz heads, like, playing the guitar by themselves, and they're improvising over the song, and it sounds amazing, and, you know, you go to try to do it, and it just sounds whack, because you don't know what to do. Right. And, like, it's crazy. Absolutely. He, he put it in such a beautiful way. He was basically, he basically just said this, you know, just think about the melody. Don't think about the chords. And when you're a guitar player, when you're soloing, you always think about the chords. I mean, you know, you think about, like, well, what chord am I playing? What scale am I going to play? Not the melody, you know, because we're so used to being like melody comes from the chords, not the other way around. And that's the crazy thing about jazz is that jazz really teaches you to think about melody and to think about how melody influences the chords because chords don't matter. You can literally, there's improvisation that has no chords like Ornette Coleman, who is a crazy jazz saxophone player. And he's probably on the level of Miles Davis in terms of musical impact in the last hundred years. You know, there's people like him who improvise without chords, but there's, it's not like they're just playing nonsense. Like they're thinking about the relationship between the notes and the melody. So, you know, that, that video of Bill Frizzell being like, you know, I'm thinking about the melody and how to, like, phrase that. I'm thinking about the notes and the melody and, like, well, where can I put, like, open strings and stuff? So that's one thing that jazz teaches you to do is to think about melody and how you're improvising is basically you're playing a melody. I mean, it's cool to shred and all, 
But in jazz, that's not really like a welcome thing. Unless let's, you're, let's be honest. Like, let's be honest. Is it that cool to shred? Because I don't think it is. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's not. None of my I, my top. If you ask me what my top ten guitar is right now, none of them, save for Nels Klein, like can shred in a metal context. Like every one of them is like not a shredder. I don't think shredding is very cool. I think it's a valuable thing to learn how to pick fast, like Tom Bukovac. Or any of those guys right. really fast. But it's not even Bill Frizzell, like for example, one of my favorite guitar players. He, he doesn't upstroke, he just downstrokes. And for those who don't play guitar, you downstroke and upstroke to get like faster motion because if you just stroke down with a pick, um, you know, it tires your wrist out. So you can stroke up and down really fast and it makes it easier. But Bill Frizzell, he just strokes him down. But there's a beauty in that because he's not able to play as fast. He's not able to play as many notes. So he makes the notes that he can play really count. And that's what's gorgeous about him. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. And I feel like, you know, I'm not trying to put myself in any, any sort of the same universe as this amazing guitar teacher that you have. Um, or the guy who just inspired, who talked about melody, but like, so for me personally, um, I have like a uh, theory that I have all these undiagnosed learning disabilities. <laughs> Bro, same, but like some minor diagnosis. So, you know, <laughs> I remember like when I was in elementary school and they taught us alphabetical order. Um, I, that gave me like extreme anxiety and was like really hard for my brain, like sequencing things in an order for whatever reason in my brain. Like it's, and I've, I've, I've like worked on it and I can put things in alphabetical order. Like if you held a gun to my head, but like, so the reason I bring that up is because like chord sequences that, and like also like song structure too, that like really, that's hard for me to compute. So like, I always think about melody first, not because I'm smart or because I, um, I guess like that's the only way I feel like my brain can do it is I'm like, okay, like melody and rhythm, that's it. And like chords, like who cares really? Yeah, like, if you're on a band, I mean, like, they're, my guitar teacher, both of them, like, there's been times where they've been on the bandstand, or, like, they've been on a show, and, like, they don't know the song that they're playing, but if you just follow the melody and play chords that are relatively diatonic, that have that melody note in them, like, three out of four times, you're probably going to be, like, on a right chord, or, like, something that could be considered okay in that context. Mm-hmm. You know, and song structures and... <clears throat> chord structures are kind of weird like um it's hard it's it's sort of like math like you have to memorize them like you know you have these different chord progressions that are like you know everyone talks about like a two five one which is i'm not going to get into it but it's basically those numbers relate to certain chords and everyone talks about that and i didn't know what that was now i do but it's weird because everyone's like, oh, it's just a two, five, one. You can see it. And you're just like, what? Like, it took me so long to put the notes that they're playing to those chords. So I think a valuable thing, if you're trying to learn guitar in a jazz context, I think a valuable thing is for, for and I, I did this the wrong way, but I think the most valuable thing is learn the melody of a song first. Don't worry about the chords. Learn the melody first and see how the notes interact with each other. And then go on to learning the chords. Because if you learn the chords first, it's going to be a lot harder for you to learn the melody. Because you're going to be thinking about the rhythm of the song, which is very important. But I think being able to play the melody without rhythm 
is equally as important because you want to be able to understand the structure of the song, what the chords are written around. Yeah, and I think I think that's a cool piece of advice, and um, I think I'm gonna. Now that you mentioned that to me today, I feel like I'm gonna be thinking about it all day, and hopefully, you know, something. Yeah, go, just go buy a fake book and learn how to read sheet music. Just go wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll see. Um, okay, so I want to shift to what you hate the most about being a guitar player. Um, the fact that there, the fact that Blake Mills exists, like. Oh man, he's probably my favorite guitar player. I, I discovered him this year, and oh my god, he is insane! Like, I think he got a gig with like Lucinda Williams, who, for those who don't know, she's probably one of the most famous female country singers. He got the Lucinda Williams gig like when he was nineteen. Like, what? That is insane. So there's that already. So you hate not being the best? Is that what you're saying? No. I hate the fact that there's these people that come around, these prodigies, who just, okay. like, there's no effort involved. There's, like, no effort in what they're doing. It's all just coming freely. Like, you, Blake Mills, Julian Lodge, Nels Klein, John Prashanti, all these guys. There's no, they're not putting effort into it. It just comes naturally. Like, the guitar is a part of them. And, like, well, but you don't know that, right? You don't know the effort. Because I, I feel like John Frusciante, he's considered one of the most, one of the most, like, hardworking musicians in, in the industry. It's not like that there's no effort in terms of that they're putting in it. It just, it looks like there's no effort. It just comes Okay, you know, so that, that's great. So you feel like you don't feel, it doesn't feel contrived. Is that what you're yeah. saying? No, like, there's that's a leading like, question. I'm, like, I'm in, um, interpreting what you're, what you're saying. Yeah, no, like... There's, like, all these, you know, like, you see these guitarists just play these things, and they just make it look so easy, and you're just like, how? It's it's insane, and I mean, like, a lot of these people, I started playing guitar relative to them. A lot of these people started playing guitar, like, a few years after I started playing guitar, and it really puts into perspective the musical journey that you take, like, you know... Uh, Wes Montgomery, I don't think he started playing guitar until he was like in his 20s, and he's considered one of the best guitar players of all time. I started playing guitar seriously when I was 10, and I I will never be on a pedestal like him. Like, he is insane. So I think it really puts into perspective the amount of effort that you put into learning your instrument and also the influences that you take and how you work those influences in and how you listen to diverse music. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think that, like... And I think that's what's so fun about music is everyone has, I don't know, everyone has their specific journey. Like I was listening to, um, I feel like Tom Morello, people have been talking about him a ton because like Rage Against the Machine was all protest music. And so like now, like, well, like, yeah, they were, I got, I got tickets to go see them. $700. Yeah. I, I want to see them so bad. Like, you know, I love Rage, but yeah. he, he was talking about how like he started late. And so he literally locked himself in his room and would practice eight hours a day. I think, all right. I have a thing about practicing eight hours a day. I think that if you are able to do it, then go ahead and do it. But like for most people, we are not like able to just drop out of school. And also times are changing as well, because when Tom Morello, he started playing in the eighties and you know, at that point, a college education, so, like, college education only really became valuable in the last 20 years. Like, you could not go to college, and you could still be pretty successful in the 80s. Um, so, you know, and, you know, high school didn't really matter 
at that point. So, you know, you have the ability. That's why there's so many people, great guitar players who are older than us, is that you have the ability to just lock yourself in a room and, like, you know, just play for eight hours a day. So if you have the ability to do that, great. But if you don't have the ability to do that, don't worry, because you can do the same amount that you're going to do in eight hours as you can do in two hours, because I find that when you lock yourself... I've tried to play for, like, six and eight hours a day, and I find that when you try to do that, you end up just kind of playing the same stuff after, like, the third hour. You just kind of do the same things over and over and over again. It doesn't really help. Yeah, I feel like for me, I I don't know. I've... I've done like eight to ten hour like recording sessions where you're like with a band. that's a different thing that's a, different. a whole different thing that's a whole different thing but I feel like practicing for me it's been more about like having a guitar accessible and like doing it consistently day after day that's how that's how you get good it's like like letting your brain rest you know yeah you gotta let your brain rest I feel like I think the reason that they got so good by doing the eight hours a day thing is because they did eight hours a day for like a year straight. And they just got all, like, the bad stuff out of their system. So that way, when they practice down for, like, an hour a day, they just get so much more out of it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, everyone's approach is different, but I feel like um, that was an interesting one that stood out to me where I was like, okay, that's not... Because I started young, and I feel like I've had, like, times where I've been more intense about practicing and other times where I focus on other things. And I've kind of come back to it and felt like I was better because I didn't focus on it, you know? So I feel like there's some, some, there's like some mythology where it's like, I'm a master because I just, I slaved away. And it's like, yeah, you need lots of hours. And there's like, there, you do need lots of hours, but like there are guitar players, like one of my favorite guitar players of all time is Steve Malcolmus. And if you ask any guitar teacher, like he sucks. Like, (laughs) you know, he's just like a terrible guitar player. But what makes him so great for me is that he uses his shittiness to, like, the perfect balance because it's this perfect balance of, like, he knows what he's doing, doesn't know what he's doing. And that's what I love about him. It's, like, this chaos that he brings to his playing. And, like, obviously his songwriting is amazing, but I love his guitar playing because it's so chaotic and it's such, like, such a big bass level, but he does so much with it, which I think is amazing. Well, and I think, you know, there's something to be said for, like, knowing too much and that being a detriment to, like, your musical expression. And oh, I- it is. Like, you know, having, having going to music college, you, you meet people who are like Jacob Collier, and we, we can talk about that. I, I have my opinion on Jacob Collier, and I, I don't like him. Okay. So, I don't like Jacob Collier. I have, like, I have a thing with him. Let's talk about it, dude. Let's, All get, right. let's get Jacob Collier is yeah. Yes, Jacob Collier is probably the greatest musical mind to have lived probably since like I don't know Mozart or something like that. Like yeah, he probably is. But the man cannot write songs. Oh my god, have you read his lyrics? God damn, it's like John Mayer. It's like your thing with John Mayer. It's like, I can't handle Jacob Collier's lyrics. They're so bad. They're just so base level. He just puts too much time into the complexity of these songs. And also, like, I don't know anyone besides jazz heads who get off to listening to bootleg Miles Davis concerts from, like, 1989. Besides them, I don't know anyone who listens to Jacob Collier for pleasure. Most people who listen to Jacob Collier listen because microtone or chord harmony what that's insane now i do have the biggest respect in the world for jacob collier um 
I mean, like, he's won so many Grammys, and, you know, he's very successful, and he's done a lot of cool things, but I cannot handle his own music. It's just too much for me. And not to say that I don't like complex music. I like complex music. Uh, but I feel like he just takes it to a point that's beyond the evolutionary standards of the human mind. I feel like if we looked at his brain, it'd kind of be like Einstein's, where, like, his brain just, like, was shaped differently. Like, I feel like, J- I feel like Jacob Collier's brain is probably shaped differently because, like, his musical capabilities are great, but it's just, like, sometimes it's just, like, the things that he's doing, that he does, it's just, like, I literally cannot comprehend, like, what he's doing, and it's not in a bad, it's not, like, in a way that, like, oh, you know, he's just doing that to be a poser. It's, like, no, I literally just cannot comprehend it, and that's not to say I'm ignorant of it, it's just that I feel like it's too much. I mean, like, do you really need 600 Logic session tracks to make a song, like, and I feel like I watch, he does these videos where he like breaks down his logic sessions. And like, you can tell this dude probably like, he knows that his songs are like ridiculous at times. And he probably, and you can tell that like, there's probably a sense of like, I'm going to make this song as ridiculous as pop as I can possibly make it within the confines of musical understanding. Yeah. Um, that's interesting because I feel like when I hear, a musician that's just like insanely like they know a ton about music. They're insanely tech, like technically proficient. Um, it's cool, but I feel like it does the same thing for me that watching somebody and I'm borrowing this analogy from a friend. Cause I feel like he said it really well. Um, Adam Hastings, uh, is yeah. friend, and he said this credit where credit's due, but I feel like it's like, it's like watching, um, Usain Bolt, you know, run a crazy fast track race. I'm like, wow, that was amazing. And like, that blows my mind that there is someone on this earth that can do that, you know? But I feel like it doesn't do the thing that music does for me where it's like, it speaks to my soul and it kind of like celebrates my humanity and it makes me feel connected to other people, you know? Yeah. Like the problem, the problem with Jacob Collier's music is obviously like his harmony and his harmony is insane. But the problem is he just like, the songwriting just isn't really there in terms of like lyrical content and like themes and like making a cohesive song that has like sensical lyrics. Obviously you can make songs that just don't make sense, but I feel like if you just do that for your whole career, you just kind of like hit a brick wall after like the first album after like the second album. And that's my problem with him is it's like, yeah, it's great. It's insanely cool that he can do this harmony. Like, he gave a talk at Berkeley. Like, I didn't go to it, but, like, I saw friends. Like, he made a song about a toilet while, like, he was doing the call. Like, he made a song about a toilet. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Why do I care? Right. You know, it's like, why, why should I care about this? I mean, yes, he's really good at production, and he's really good at, you know, harmony. But, like, the songwriting isn't there, and I feel like that's the most important thing thing about music that's why i like blake mills so much because he's got like this innate sense of harmony and rhythm and like music stuff but his songwriting is like so impeccable you're just kind of like astounded it's like i feel like the thing with virtuosity is that virtuosity tends to outshine songwriting in music a lot of the time yeah like you, you, you like oh what's your favorite toast in the bossy song i don't know <laughs> Right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what? You, you know, but then you're like, oh, what's your favorite Nick Drake song? Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Which will? Yeah. And I feel like, I don't know. 
where the songwriting aspect comes from. You know? Songwriting is an interesting thing because you can't teach it. You know, you see all these things where it's like songwriter course and like I learn how to write songs with like X and X. It's like, no, that's not how it works. What you do, what you do to learn songs is you just do it every day. You just, you just write words and you see what happens. You can't teach people how to write words that you do that in English class. You can teach them how to write a story, but you can't teach them how to write a story to music that speaks to them. You gotta do it on your own. And like, I've been learning this more and more. I, you know, I didn't, I, I like, Previously to March of this year, like I had never written lyrics before, and now I, I try to write lyrics every day or every other day, like a full thing, like a full idea. And I find that you can't really teach songwriting; you just have to do what speaks to you best. Because, like, if I tried to write a song like Jeff Tweedy, it'd probably sound terrible. Well, yeah, but I think that that's amazing that you're doing that every day, and I feel like that makes me excited to think of like what you're expressing and now i want to hear all of it you know yeah i mean like so that's like gonna be the thing that is so distinct to you like the same way you have like a distinct feel on the guitar because you're a human and you have like that's the thing about this like everyone's human so everyone's gonna have a different way of writing songs but i feel like songwriting is the most personal thing a lot personal thing ever because with guitar obviously there's personality but it's like okay, like, you use a Fender Stratocaster, so you're probably going to sound a certain way or something like that. But with songwriting, it's like, if you're, if you're trying to compare songwriters, that's like trying to compare, like, oh, how big is this guy's arm compared to this guy's arm? You know, it's, it's right. like, it, it doesn't really make sense. It's just kind of like, you gotta, it doesn't really, you know, you, you just gotta do it, and you just gotta write lyrics, and they're gonna suck. I think, like, probably the first 50 lyric things that I wrote, like, were pretty bad. But, like, now they're starting to get to a point where it's, like, okay. And I think another important thing, for, another really important thing for songwriting is just read books. Just read. Helps you so much because you just learn words that, like, allow you to express things that you kind of express before. So, like, if you just read, like, if you read a book, like, once every few weeks, like that'll definitely improve your songwriting. Cause I find all my favorite songwriters are big, like bookheads and they're super into literature and like, Listen, I feel like literature. that. And like a lot of my favorite songwriters, they're really out there, like living their life, you know, and like having yeah. unique experiences. And obviously as you have your own experiences, you have experiences that are consistent with just like the human experience. You can connect with other people. Not maybe not intentionally, but like you end up having similar experience to another human. But like reading is good. Yeah, I feel like having life experience, you know, being vulnerable and just- I feel like what's what, what's worked for me is just stop worrying about what you're gonna do in the future and just try to focus on every try to focus on at most like the next week or something. But like I don't really think about like, oh, what am I gonna do next year? I don't really think about that. I just I find what works best for me to you know be happy but also to be a good songwriter is to just go day by day because if you think if you're trying to think to yourself like okay tomorrow i'm gonna write a song that's about this like you're not gonna do it or if you do it it's probably not gonna be good nine times out of ten so what i do is i just go day by day and whatever i'm thinking about that day that's what i turn into a song you know like i'll have moments where it's just like i write a song in like five minutes because i like someone texted me something and i'm like oh that's kind of or like i said something out loud and i'm like oh that's good of course i guess you know it's just like you just got just comes randomly sure yeah i love that i love that um you want to ask some silly questions now 
Yeah, I want to ask one silly question, and then then I actually have to wrap up because I do have to go to work because right. sadly this isn't paying the bills yet, you know. Yeah. Um, but it will soon because I'm going to get sponsored by a guitar. Yeah, company. yeah get sponsored by a guitar company. Get sponsored by JHS Pedals, please, or Jam Pedals, either or, please, 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 please. Okay, <laughs> let me ask you. Let me ask you a question. Um, would you? disown me as a friend if I became sponsored by Strymon guitar pedals. <laughs> one, of, one of our biggest bonding moments was us bonding about hating Strymon guitar pedals. <laughs> for those of you who don't, for, for people listening, and I feel like there's probably two people enjoying this conversation because it's so niche and it's about like weird guitar stuff but like yeah. so your typical guitar pedal costs like what like 100 to 200 bucks like i have a like so i have a guitar pedal board next to me and like i have this like i i, I have like i don't use a lot of pedals but i have like six and i'd say the most expensive one is 300 dollars, but that's because it's like three pedals in one box so like that in that sense each individual pedal would be like a hundred dollars basically which is relatively cheap and even then, yeah, even then, it's like you're you're not typically you're buying between the hundred and two hundred dollar range, right? But like, yeah. Simon guitar pedals for whatever reason they're like three hundred dollars. Sometimes they're like four hundred and fifty bucks for like a reverb pedal, and it's like. The, okay, and the people who use Strymon pedals, they don't gig, man. They like put it on their board. They like polish the Strymon pedal. It's like. Yeah. I remember someone was like, hey, this is like this amazing slapback delay pedal and it's like 450 bucks. I'm like, you got to get it. I'm like, wow, can I record an entire album into that pedal? Because like that is so much money. Like think about it. You get five Strymon guitar pedals. You're sitting on a pedal board that is $2,500 and you can probably do like four things with it. Yeah. Like I understand that like I think, okay, like there's one thing that Strymon did that I think is cool and that's the Volante and that's like their delay pedal thing. I think that's cool. But, like, why am I going to spend $250 on a Tube Screamer clone that has MIDI in it? Like, why would I do that? Why am I going to spend $300 on a reverb? Why am I going to spend $300 on something my amp already does that I just have a foot switch for? Yeah, it's just, I think that what I hate about it, and I'm, tr- I'm trying to, like, psychoanalyze why I hate it so much. I think it's because it's a pedal company that's marketed towards... Rich white guys, like honestly, it's art. Rich white guys who are like only gearheads that don't gig or really play or like. I don't think I've I've been in like I've been in studios where like amazing engineers own them, but I feel like it's like they're just gearheads who happen to be amazing, and they're like few and far between. I feel like your typical Strymon guitar owner is like an like a six year old accountant who like just is like, wow, this one's expensive. Like I'm gonna buy, you know what I mean? So. I, I had, like, the El Capistan once, because I was like, oh, it's got tap tempo, and that's cool. And then, like, and then I, I got this one pedal, and it's three pedals in one, and it's got a delay in it. And the delay has, like, four knobs, basically. Three of them don't even really do anything. So there's, like, two knobs that actually do something. And I'm like, wow, I can do the same exact thing that the Strymon thing does, but it takes up way less space. And also, it is not three hundred and fifty dollars. Gosh, yeah, it's just I don't know. It's just I, I hate it, and it's just like, it's like, like I don't think I've I don't think I've seen like a gigging musician that I know who actually uses like a Strymon pedal. Like of all the people that I've met who like gig regularly that I know or that I've talked to, like probably like a fraction, like a very small fraction of them actually use Strymon pedals. Like I don't feel like I feel like. No, if you're, 
Now, famous people, people who like you know have bigger gigs, like okay, yeah, then like they'll probably use them because you know they have the funding to. But I feel like if you're just like living in you know if you're just like playing music on weekends, like there's no real need to buy a Strymon pedal. Just buy a Boss Delay pedal. Like it does the same exact thing. Well, but like even like you look at you watch like Nell's Klein's rig rundown. Dude is touring with Wilco. Like he yeah. could probably get an endorsement or something. Yeah, so he's using all these weird, cheap, like quirky guitar pedals that give. I him- have like yeah, like he uses the Hot Cake Overdrive, which is like a hundred dollar overdrive pedal from twenty years ago. I have one on my board. It's amazing. He uses like a Boss. He uses like the old Boss pedals, like the eighty dollar Boss pedals that like you know they're tanks. They don't break and they sound amazing. Yeah, yeah. like I think well, be, like he just. I don't, it, no, the most expensive thing he owns is a Klon, but that's because it's a Klon. Yeah, I mean, that's not... I feel like a Klon is, like, the same thing as owning, you know, his, like, 59 Jazzmaster or whatever. That's, yeah. like, it's really, like, truly its own thing and has character, whereas, like, Strymon pedals are just built for pure consumerism. And I could go on about this forever, but I'm going to ask you one more question before we go. Right. Okay? Not music-related at all. Yeah, I think I know what it is. How small can a bit... A bacon bit be before, or how big, excuse me, how big can a bacon bit be before it's just a strip of bacon and not... I got a perfect example. The size of a Poland Spring bottle cap. (laughs) Why? Qualify this answer. All right. So, um, if you've ever been down south before and you've ever gone to get... So, up north, so, you know, like, we're in New York. It's like breakfast is kind of like a lean thing here. It's not like a big thing. But down south, breakfast is, like, this huge thing. Yeah. And every time I've gone down south to, like, any any state past, like, New Jersey, if you order something with bacon in it, like, let's say I order an omelet with bacon in it, like, or a soup with bacon in it, the pieces will be, like, this big. Like, the bacon bits will be this big. Or, like, a salad, like, a wedge salad somewhere, like, you know, bacon bits, I'm thinking, like, oh, they're going to be, like, this big. They'll be, like... This big as Poland Spring bottle cap, so I feel like I, I feel like that's a good measurement for it because past that, it's kind of like okay, well, that's like you ripped a piece of bacon, you know, because a piece of bacon is like let's say I don't know, foot long, let's say, so like past the size of a Poland Spring bottle cap, that's just kind of like you ripped it off because you ripped off a piece of the piece of bacon because your friend was like, yo, let me get some of that. <laughs> okay, okay, well, um. I think that that's a, like, I'd give that answer, like, a C plus, you know? Right. So it's pretty good. It's a passing grade. No! Um, I think I'm going to start asking everyone who comes on this podcast that question. That's a great. I was, I was thinking to myself when I was, like, looking at the questions, I was like, that's a great one to, like, have, like, a theme be around that. To, like, have a segment where you just ask people, like, bacon-related questions. Yeah, because I remember when I first thought of that question, I was, like, sitting in a hot tub with, a, like, a couple friends and a bunch of strangers, and I asked everyone, and they just looked at me like I was a crazy person, which is true. <laughs> I feel like um, that's how, you know, you struck gold when you ask some people, and you can just see the existential dread in their mind. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a bacon bit because it's a bacon bit, you know? Yeah. But it's not. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you for having me on here. It was a blast. I hope it gets more views than uh, it would have if, I don't know, uh, you were by yourself or something like that because I'm special and I'm someone who's <laughs> in 
I have value in life. Um, buy my merchandise. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me on here. I hope we can do a part two or something like this because it, it was really cool and definitely. I, I want to next time you have me on. I want to rank the Kendrick projects because I got some good opinions on that. Cool, cool. Yeah, well, we definitely will definitely have to do this again. This was super fun. Um, yeah. And when I do your intro, I'm going to pronounce your last name Alardice. How's that sound? It's better than the little quick story. I was playing a gig once, and this guy introduced me. My last name is pronounced Allardyce. This guy straight up goes, Chase Allardick. Oof. I like a gig with like 100 people there. It's a good moment in my life. Well, you know what? It's, you got nowhere to go but up as far as gigs go from there. So, like, all right, buddy. I love you. I'll see you soon. Coming on, man. Yeah. Peace.